phantoms. Phantoms in the sanctuary, phantoms in the pulpit, phantoms in the hallways, phantoms roaming campus. So many church buildings are haunted by phantoms. Haunted by a phantom faith, not a Holy Ghost-born, not a Holy Spirit-born belief, but a ghostly belief, a disembodied belief. Years ago, the brilliant and disturbingly insightful writer Flannery O'Connor once commented on the culture of the South in which she lived. She said it was hardly Christ-centered. It was not Christ-centered, but it was most certainly Christ-haunted. Now, what she meant was that it was a culture rampant with phantom faith. Religious in certain ways, but not in substance, not in heart, not in essence, not in the meat of one's life, not in the way people inhabited their days. Now, what she said regarding the South could be said about much of the Western world regarding church at large in our day and age. So many of us have been haunted by a phantom faith, a disembodied faith. And we feel this haunting in what is called cognitive dissonance. Thinking one thing, then behaving another, and then having to deal with and live with the tension that is created. We feel it in a split self, a lack of coherence to who we are. We feel it in disingenuous ways, in a deep, identity disconnect that we don't know how to articulate. We feel it in what we call the imposter syndrome, which many of us carry on our shoulders. We feel it in our disappointment with our lives, our decisions, our actions. We feel it in the spiritual malaise. We feel in the haunting in our mask making, the making of smiling pretenses, masquerading, hiding, professing something but not fleshing it out, and it's exhausting. Yet it's really hard to face in ourselves because it's so painful. And so we call out virtue signaling in other people, and we say, ah, that's virtue signaling, and we we condemn, we condemn, we condemn. And really, virtue signaling is just the secular version of what's called hypocrisy. In the Bible, it's hard to see it in ourselves, so we call it out in others assuage the the guilt and shame phantoms so many phantoms in our world now the term phantom let's define that Uh, a phantom is something apparent to sense but with no substantial existence phantom is something existing in appearance only phantom is something incorporeal a bodiless entity a specter a spirit a ghost Phantom is a disembodied object of dread, as one dictionary definition says, a dreadful unreality. Now, the reason why I use this term is because I believe this term can help us with a misunderstanding, help us to see something that James is putting forward. Because there is a uh, common misunderstanding about what faith is. There's a popular understanding about faith, what I'll call a phantom faith, and there's a biblical faith. And so, 
Let's look at that. A popular faith. When you think about faith at the popular level, kind of what a lot of us imbibe just growing up in this Western world, faith is a mental assent to some truth. Do you believe in God? Yes, I believe God exists. Do you believe in aliens? No, I do not believe aliens exist, right? It's like, does something exist? Is it real? I accept that or I don't accept that. That's so often what people mean by faith. Yes, I believe that's, that's the case, or I don't believe that's the case. But that is not biblical faith. It's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is embodied, loving trust in God, by the way, who, yes, exists. Right? It's not just mental assent to some fact. It's how one lives, how one inhabits this world regarding that truth. And so there's a world of difference between phantom faith or popular faith and real biblical faith. Now this word embodied uh, basically means that loving trust is seen in what one does with their life, with, with their physicality, their actions, their resources, how they live in and how they inhabit this world. Loving in that it is rooted in the heart, in relationship, in intimacy, in identity with God, our, our creator and savior. And trust and that it's obedience, it's a response to God's revelation, it's a response to his word, showing us, teaching us what is true, and then we respond with the, the totality of our being. Now if you've been around here more than a week or two, you know we talk about apprenticeship to Jesus a lot. And so what I just said is one of the reasons why we define apprenticeship in the following way. Apprenticeship to Jesus is embodied loving trust in Jesus, empowered by his spirit, transforming us into his image and likeness. That it is a whole body reality where we are trusting him, and by his spirit we are empowered to do so, to live a certain way, and as we do, we are being conformed, changed, transformed into his image or his likeness. Now, James knows there is a distortion of understanding that is haunting the early church. There are those who think that faith and works don't have to live together, that they are not intertwined or, or interwoven or organically united. That one can have faith, you know, have theological thoughts, have mental assent, but not have a life of works that matches it. A disembodied faith is a contradiction in terms. It's, it's like a waterless ocean, a waterless sea. It's, it's not a thing. It makes no sense. And so one of the things he's going to teach us is that faith is an embodied, loving trust that expresses itself in works of love for God and for others. Faith is an embodied, loving trust that expresses itself in works of love for God and for others. Or you could say faith is a whole-bodied reality heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's not less than mental ascent. It's far more than mental ascent. Now, if works of love do not follow our faith, then it is a phantom faith. As we have seen, James is a book about wisdom, so James is, is concerned that the followers of Jesus uh, that are scattered in churches all over the Mediterranean world, the churches that he's writing to some 2,000 years ago, he's concerned that they live well in God's world according to his word. And that's what wisdom is, living in accordance with reality. Living well in God's world according to his word. He wants, to he wants them to live in accordance with 
reality. And this means having faith, trusting, trusting God. Now, in previous weeks we've seen that, that James talks about true religion. Authentic faith means caring for orphans and widows. And, and now he goes on here in verses 14 and 18, kind of along the same vein. So, in verse 14 he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled without giving them the things needed for the body, come on, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So James is obviously asking a rhetorical question. What good is it to say you have faith, but it doesn't show up in the things that you do? To say you have faith, but it doesn't affect how you live, and it doesn't alter any of your your relationships. Can that kind of faith save you? The answer is no, because it's not real faith. It's phantom faith. So he gives an example here. He says, look, a member of your community is in need. They're hungry. Their clothes are, are threadbare. And to profess trust in Jesus who tells you to love your neighbor and then to say, oh, hey, howdy, neighbor. Uh, may the Lord bless you. May he give you some food for your empty belly. May he put a shirt on your cold back. See you later. That, that is, that's sanctimonious. It's, it's pious callousness. It's, it's rubbish. It's a lack of compassion. It's loveless inaction. Pious words without works of love reveal a phantom faith. And we can be really good at pious words because we know what to say. I'll pray for you. Which is great, and we should. But so often we say it and we don't even do it. Pious words without works of love reveal a phantom faith. Because if you love that person in front of you, if you love them, you will act in compassion to care for them. Faith and works of love live and breathe together. Well, James then goes on to talk with an imagined conversation partner in verse 18. He says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. And then James responds, well, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, you can't show me your faith without your actions. There's nothing there to show. It's nonsensical. But I will show you my faith by how I live, by what I do, by how I engage with others. Because faith acts. Faith does. Faith works. Faith moves. Just as the burning sun shines light and gives heat, faith acts and faith does. There's no separating those. Now James goes on uh, to drive this point home with a shocking thought. You know, no, no demon is an atheist, right? No demon is an atheist. Uh, demons have really good theology. Because that thought ever taken, taken you, uh, you know, and have you sat, sat, sat down and just like worked through that? Like, demons have good theology. Like, they have really, really good doctrine. And if you carry that thought out, there's some incredible implications to that. Look what he says in verse 19. He says, you believe that God is one. He's talking about 
you know, the Shema, hear, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and, and strength. He's, he's talking about this, this key creed, this key um, understanding of, of faith in God. So he says, you guys say God is one, that there's one God, he's real, he, he exists. Okay, you do well, because that's right. But here's the deal, the demons believe that, and they shudder. This word in shudder, uh, this word in Greek, shudder, is really interesting. It means to bristle up like a cat. So um, when a cat's scared, right, arches its back and its, its hair bristles and it, and it hisses and it's ready to attack, right, that's the word, that these demons bristle up, right? They're afraid uh, and they want to attack. So think on this a moment. Demons believe there's one God. But there is one true God above all who's called Yahweh. They know it as an actual fact. No question in their distorted minds about that. They know he exists. It's not a question, right? Full mental assent. They know Jesus is the incarnate son of God. They know what Jesus did on the cross. They know he broke out of that grave, right? They know he is alive. They would give full mental assent and acknowledge the reality of everything that we preach here, though they want to distort it and twist it. Yep, it's true. The triune God exists. Jesus rose from the dead, yep. They know their doctrine, right? Demons know doctrine often better than we do. Demons aren't atheists, though they want humanity to be, right? So then, with all that said, with all that set up, question what then is the difference between the belief of a demon and the belief of an apprentice of Jesus? I mean, it can't be sheer mental intellectual content, right? They can't be just acknowledging a fact about reality, right? The difference is in how they respond to those truths with their being. It's how they live in light of those truths. It's how their heart and, and their affections lead or don't lead to proper actions and proper relationship with God and with others. So again, we can see here the difference between culturally popular or phantom faith and biblical faith. Popular faith is mental assent to some kind of truth. Yeah, it exists. Biblical faith is embodied loving trust in that true one, in God. So James, in, in my opinion, is making his point quite convincingly. And now what he's going to do is go on to give two illustrations from Scripture. So he's used reason. Now he's going to continue to use reason, but he's going to open up Scripture and show what he says is, is true. So he's going to um, lead us to Abraham and Rahab, a patriarch and a prostitute. It's a quite interesting pairing here. So let's look at verses 20 through 24. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person? Foolish. Uh, here is the opposite of wisdom. Not living in accordance with the truth. Not listening to the truth. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness 
and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Okay, uh, real quick, do James and Paul get along, if you know your Bible? Does Paul not say in Romans chapter 3, we are saved by faith alone, not by works of the law? Saved by faith alone, not by works. James, we are not saved by faith alone, but by works. I know it. Bible, it's broken. You can't trust it. It's contradictions, right? It's not the case. James and Paul get along quite brilliantly. They are attacking different issues and trying to bring synthesis to things that we are constantly tearing apart in our brokenness. Now, uh, Father Abraham. So many of us know this story, right? Maybe, maybe you know it. Maybe you don't. Uh, that, that's okay. So quick, brief overview. God called a guy named Abraham out of uh, just a, a really broken, distorted place called Ur of the Chaldeans, uh, Mesopotamia, Iraq. He called him to trust him, to leave all the idols and the brokenness of, of his understanding of the world behind and, and to move, to move to the land of promise. So Abraham went. And then Abraham listened to what God said. And, and Abraham did a great number of things that God had told him. He showed active faith. It was in his actions. He also did a number of really stupid and selfish things as well. We don't have time to get into all that. He's not perfect. There's no perfect patriarch in the Bible. There's no faultless father except for God himself, right? But in Abraham's old age, God comes to him. And he says, hey, come here. Look up. Do you see all of those stars on that black blanket of night? Good luck trying to count them. You can't, but that is what your, your heritage will be like. You will have children upon children upon children, a multitude. You're fatherless, but multitudes are coming. And Abraham believed God. And he trusted what God said. But fast forward. Years pass. Years aching and wondering, where is this child? Where are these children of, of promise? Well, the child of promise eventually comes. Uh, he's 100 years old. Abraham is 100. His wife, Sarah, is 90, and she's found to be with child. Right? So, so they waited some time, but here comes the child of promise. The hope of God's promise is now here, and his name is Isaac. But then we get a twist in the story. God comes to Abraham and says, you know, Isaac, your beloved son, the one you love, the one in which you're well pleased, take him, take this three-day journey, head up to Mount Moriah, put the wood on his back, and when he's up there, you kill him. You offer him, just like all your pagan neighbors do who kill their children. You offer him up. Now, I mean, this is incredibly hard to comprehend. Why in the world? Would God do this? Why would God take away the one through whom the promise would come? It seems like he's sabotaging his own promise, and suddenly his character's in question. What in the world is happening here? God, how could you do this? How could you let this happen? I can't imagine the questions that were in Abraham's heart and in his head. Yet, here's the incredible thing. Abraham so trusted God that he took action, right? even when he didn't have all the answers. Even when there were still questions, even when there was confusion, 
Because it says in the book of Hebrews that he believed so much in God's promise that if he were to kill him, he would be brought back from the dead. He would have a resurrected son. Now, in doing so, in trusting, Abraham not only received his son back, but he also acted out his trust in a way that was prophetic. It was prophetic. What happened in the story of Abraham and Isaac is a pointer to how God would bring in a multitude of children into the family of God through the lineage of Abraham. Because the whole point of that story is to point us to what God is doing in his son, Jesus Christ, right? Another son, an innocent son, a beloved son who had wood put on his back, climbed up a hill and went under the knife of sacrifice and then came back to be with his father, to be a blessing to the entirety of the world. It's the story of Jesus. Mount Moriah is also the same mountain as Calvary, if you don't know that. Same mountain. It's all prophetic. It all points to Jesus. Abraham did not fully understand in his act of obedience that it was a deeply loaded event full of meaning that would point to Jesus Christ and the salvation of the entirety of the world. But he took a step of faith and acted. So often we are called to do things that we have no clue the meanings that are the ramifications of that will lead to blessings for future generations. We're just clueless. How could the simple act change so many lives, change the world? But we're not called to understand all the ramifications and all the concentric circles that go out from the ripples. We're not, we're not, we don't understand all that. I mean, we can barely understand how we do our taxes or how our kids are thinking or whatever it is, let alone how the, the web of relationships works in this world. We are called to trust God. And here's the deal. Too often we say, yeah, I trust you, God. I trust you, and I, I'm going to do what you want. But, but here's the deal. First, explain to me. You know, give me the who, the how, the what. And once I have it all mapped out and all buttoned up, then I'll do it. Right? Have you ever had this conversation with God? Tell me about these things, and then, yeah, of course I'll do it. But the problem is what we're doing is we're, we're confusing trust with our control cost-benefit analysis. Because we do the cost-benefit analysis, then we realize, okay, this thing is going to work out well for me. Here's how. So we're controlling it, and now we're going to do it. That's not trust. That's simply not trust. Trust means that often you will not exactly know why or the details or how something will play out, but you trust the one orchestrating it because they have proven themselves good and faithful. And who is more good and faithful than the one who went to Calvary and put himself on the cross to save people who were against him? You can trust them completely and fully. Now, uh, moving from Genesis to Joshua, from patriarch to the faith of a prostitute, from a giant of the faith to another giant of the faith, one that happens to be a Gentile who lived in the red light district. Okay, verses 25 through 26. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, here we move to the story of Israel leaving Egypt by God's mighty acts, then wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Joshua is in charge of the people at this time, and he sends spies into the promised land to see 
what it's all about, see what it looks like so they can prepare to go in. And two of these spies are there. They're in a city called Jericho, a big fortified, armored city uh, right across the, the River Jordan there. And uh, they're found out and they're, they're wanted. The king's chasing them. And then they meet Rahab. Rahab lives in or near the outer wall. She's working as, as a prostitute. But think about her story. She's had a lot of traveling merchants come to visit her, right? And she's taken a lot of their money. But in so doing, she has heard the stories of these traveling merchants. She has heard the stories of this God named Yahweh who bested the biggest nation and the baddest gods in the world, right? Egypt. And he brought his people out and he has done mighty work after mighty work, sustaining them in the desert for 40 years. She's heard these stories, And now she meets two of his representatives. And there's something different about these two. They're way different than the other men who have visited her for years. And she says, I want to trust this Yahweh. I want to trust him. And so she takes action, right? So what does she do? Well, she says she, she trusts in this Yahweh. And that trust is seen in her actions. She welcomes the spies in, right? She hides the spies, saves their life. She assists in their escape and advised their path to safety. Her faith produced action, costly action. Her head was on the chopping block for this, right? Faith produced action, costly action. Now notice what James has done by bringing these two stories together. He's not only taught us about the whole-bodied reality, of authentic faith. He's shown us that trust is needed by a patriarch of mostly great moral character, but a lot of failings, and a prostitute. Like, so when you think about religion, you kind of have two ends of the spectrum, a very upright, religious, legalistic maybe person, and then one of license, one, one who's lived a life knowing all sorts of, of debauchery. And he brings them together and says, you know what? Everyone is saved by grace through faith. Everyone needs faith. Abraham needed faith. Rahab needed faith. A Jew needed faith. A Gentile needed faith. A man needed faith. A woman needed faith. Salvation is by faith alone, but that faith that saves is not alone because it produces works. It bears fruits, and a life is altered by an altered heart. Real faith, embodied loving trust in the Lord is the way to salvation for everyone. Everyone needs saving. So again, you might have never heard of Abraham or Rahab. This is your first day walking into a church building and you don't know if I'm in the Old Testament or New Testament or what. Let me tell you, you are saved by God's grace wrapping his loving arms around you. And by you trusting what what he has done in Christ Jesus. And as you do that, as you live into that, your life will change and you will bear fruit that you never could have imagined because his spirit is moving through you. So there's great hope wherever you are in life. Faith is always followed by works of love. Always followed by works of love. It's not just for the super saints, but for all who believe. Now, James here, after these two examples, he gives us one more really brief illustration. Faith without works is like a body without the animating spirit. 
faith without works is like a body without the animating spirit. And I don't know if you, you have ever seen a dead body, but you know right away they're not just asleep. You know that something has been separated. The animating spirit, the soul, the, the life is, is no longer in that body. It's dead. The body's lack of breath, its lack of movement shows it's dead. And so it is a lack of work of love shows that faith is dead. It's a phantom faith. Followers of Jesus are not those who just think theological thoughts. They are not just those who read something religious or talk about something religious. They are those who do works of love because the ultimate work of love has brought them to life. Faith is the embodied loving trust that expresses itself in works of love for God and others. And I think this is an important thought. Maybe this will help you, help me. To trust God is to reflect his ethical character in our relationships. When we trust him and see he's good and true and know that we are to be conformed to the image of Christ, then that starts to form us to look like him, right? And so to trust him, to love him, is to be formed by him And that shows in our ethical character as our ethical character begins to reflect who he is and what he's done. So now, let's do this. Let's step back for a moment. Let's look at the wider picture. James is the brother, right? The biological brother of of Jesus. He's seen Jesus in action. He grew up with him. Um, and remember this. Remember James's nickname? Do you guys remember one of James's nicknames? James the, yeah, James the Just or James the Righteous. That word "just" or "righteous," um, zedekah, uh, means to have proper relationships with other people, to live in right action with with others, God and and others. So James is is really obsessed with this idea of living well in this world. And he teaches us that how we treat others is the gauge of how we love God. How we treat others is the gauge of how we love God. And this takes us right back to the context of our passage. So this is why I'm saying let's step back. What did we talk about last week? If you weren't here, we talked about favoritism and how broken and wicked it is to, to have favoritism for those who are rich over those who are poor. James also, as we step back, talked about true religion Authentic faith being taking care of the widow and the orphan, those who are emblematic of all those in need. We are to care for those who are in need. And then today in the passage, James says uh, that a professed faith that piously prays for another to get warmth and food but walks on by and doesn't as much lift a pinky to help that person is a phantom faith. It's creepy faith, right? And the world sees that. It's a faith that too often haunts the Western church and has compartmentalized faith, downgraded faith to mental assent, reducing it to thoughts about God, damaging our witness to the world. And so James is right in line with the teachings of Jesus. The, the teachings of Jesus, they're, they're in the bones and blood of, of James. And so what I want to do right now is We've heard from James. Let's see the source where he got all of this from. So let's hear from Jesus himself. 
What I'm about to read is Matthew chapter 25, and this is a really important teaching where Jesus is telling the disciples what to expect when, when the end comes and how Jesus will judge the, the sheep from the goats, those, those who trust him and, and those who don't. And here's what he says, Matthew 25, verses 34 through 40. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. This is the king speaking, okay? This is the king speaking. This is Jesus speaking. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when, when did we see you? When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? When in the world were you naked, and when did I clothe you? When did we see you a stranger? That's, that's amazing to me. Um, okay, listen. And when did we see you in prison? Like, when was Jesus in prison that we saw? He's in the scriptures, but when did we see this, right? The king answers them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So this is, a, this is crucial to apprenticeship to Jesus. He's saying that the righteous, right, you can see the words in there, the righteous, those who lived in right relationship with him and with other people, the righteous will say, when did we do these things to you? And he says, you did these things to me when you did it to the least of these. And then he ticks them off, like, you fed the hungry. You did something. You cared for me. You fed the hungry. You gave water to the thirsty. You gave hospitality to the stranger. You clothed the naked, the impoverished. You tended to the sick, and you ministered to those who were in prison. Those are all doings, right? Those are all doings. Those are, those, that was love in action, not love in abstraction. And so bottom line here is love for the king of glory is, is seen in love for the least of these. The high and the low, heaven and earth are brought together in this. The love for the king of glory is seen in the love for the least of these. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself. And as we love God, we will love our neighbor. We love God by loving our neighbor and we love our neighbor by loving God and they live in this mutual increase. Guys, this is why the benevolence ministry is so key to our church family. And I know we don't talk about it a ton, we don't highlight it, and we're not spotlighting it all the time. Sometimes we talk about it. But there is so much care that is being done for the orphan, for, for the widow, for, for the stranger through this church family. It's, it's beautiful. It's been in our DNA here since day one. Even to the point where other churches in the valley have come and said, hey, tell us about how your benevolence ministry works. And I see some benevolence workers right now. Thank you for your care and your time and your hours spent with all of these people. This is so important to us. And that's a beautiful thing. It's a bright spot in, in, in the, the body here. But the question I think for us personally and to our families, not just corporately, but make this personal. What faith-born works of love is he guiding us into? Not just putting it all in the benevolence ministry, but in your life, and in yours, and in yours, and in yours. 
And you know this last year has been a, a time of major change, right? I mean, obviously. Uh, seismic shifts in culture, social rhythms have the people assessing what they're doing, who they are, right? Jobs have been reassessed. Commute times, are they worth it? Now nah, we're moving, you know? People have moved wanting a change in scenery or to be with family. It's been a season of, of, of shuffling in the church, right? People in mass have shifted churches because they're, they're reassessing what's, what's valuable, what's good, what's, what's true. And it seems to me like this is a really good season to do some inventory on this about phantom faith and biblical faith. Is my faith a phantom faith? Is it a whole-bodied faith, a whole-life kind of faith? Have I piously walked by the needs of others and not engaged them with costly actions? So as we close, three reflections that, that may help us, that may spur us into a healthier place. The first one is simply this. Ask ourselves this. In what ways has my faith been a phantom faith? Ask the Lord to deal with you honestly, to have honest dealings with you. In what ways has my faith been a phantom faith? And it doesn't mean necessarily that you don't really believe in the Lord, but there's these areas in your life where you're not trusting in him. So you say one thing, but really it's, it's a phantom limb or it's a phantom aspect of your faith. Also, what works of love is my faith in Jesus leading me to do? I guarantee you there's been something in your life that's pinged your conscience, that's come to your attention. Maybe it's through a neighbor. Maybe it's through something online or, or work or, or in ministry life. I don't know what, what it is, but I imagine there's something that has pinged you, that has called you to engage. You knew it was going to be sacrificial, so you stepped aside and said, not today. What is that thing? And then third, meditate on Christ's life of love. We are people of the word. What we observe, what we look at, what we behold is what we become like. Don't follow the broken models of the world. Lock your vision on Christ. Meditate on Christ and his life of love. Watching what the master does, then prayerfully follow his lead. That is how our affections will be changed. And this won't just be white knuckling is we watch Jesus, we delight in how brilliant he is, how loving he is, how he approaches situations where they try to trap him and crush him, and he finds a way to love everyone and challenge everyone simultaneously. Where he loves others at great cost to himself. Feed on those visions of what the good life is. Look at our master. Spend your days with him. Think about him, and then prayerfully follow his lead. I wonder what costly actions your faith needs to be expressed by. I wonder in what ways will our faith be seen in unpopular and sacrificial actions. What Abraham-like, what Rahab-esque paths does your faith call for? What beloved thing in your life must you offer to the Lord, put on the altar as Abraham once did with Isaac? What must you do or risk to care for another, to shelter them from some form of violence or injustice, to be hospitable and care for a stranger like Rahab once did? Faith and flesh, they go together. Love and trust 
and sweat and blood, they live together. We don't have a phantom king. We have an incarnate blue-collar king who rolled up his sleeves, got his hands dirty, and did works of love. And we are called to do the same. Father, would you help us? Would you help us to do the same? Would you help us by the power of your spirit, the spirit of Christ in us, to love others well? And Father, where there are those dead parts of our faith, those phantom parts, those phantom limbs of our faith, would you bring those to life as as we acknowledge that we have not trusted you in these areas? Would you help us to act like Christ, to love like Christ? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace, that we are saved by grace through faith alone, and we are called to partner with you in the flourishing of this world. So, we thank you now that we can come to this table to celebrate the goodness of who you are and what you have done by taking on a body and bringing love to this world. In the name of Christ that we pray, amen.